the home of Terry Moore. Terry, why don't you tell us a little of who you are? I know you don't like to talk about yourself, but give us a little background of, of your history and what you're doing now. Well, uh, it always picks up people's ears when you say you have a star on Hollywood Boulevard, and I have an Academy Award nomination for Come Back Little Sheba, uh, opposite Burt Lancaster. But I started when I was... Uh, uh, 11 years old, I made my first movie. You want me to go back that far? Absolutely. Okay. I would have started uh, David at four, but I got the measles. So that uh, uh, stopped my career at the, that early age. And um, when I was 10 years old, my, fa my uh, neighbor sent my picture into a casting magazine. And I just turned 11 when I got a call from Central Casting. And I went on an interview with 500 other little girls to 20th Century Fox. And they picked six of us, screen tested us. And I got the part uh, in the movie Maryland to play Walter Brennan's granddaughter. And uh, I play Brenda Joyce as a child who grows up and marries John Payne. And that started my career. But I had braces on my teeth, and they asked me. Uh, I, my mother was so excited. It never occurred to her I wouldn't get the role. So she had all my braces pulled off. You know how expensive that is. When I went in, they said, do you mind having braces put back on your teeth? So <laughs> I had to have them put back. And then um, when I kept... Uh, having to take braces off, we turned to radio, and I did five radio shows a week as a child because I could keep my braces on. You have a great voice. Oh, now, was thank that you. you were you were doing uh, as Jan Ford, right? Right. Yes. Yes. I used the name for a while as Judy Ford. Then I went under contract to Eagle Lion, and they changed my name to Jan Ford because of Judy Garland. And there weren't any other Jans at that time. Then when I later went to Columbia. Harry Cohen named me Terry Moore. And that was my first big grown-up break. Well, I'll go back because I think it's kind of interesting that I played so many other stars there as children or as their daughter. And I played uh, Victor Mature's daughter in a movie that he played opposite Rita Hayworth called My Gal Sal. And then uh, later, uh, uh, 20 years later, I played uh, opposite Victor Mature. And he used to kid me and said, yes, in 10 years from now, you'll be my mother. And 10 years later, I played opposite Victor Mature in a movie called Gambling House. And it was kind of interesting because it also starred William Bendix. And it's funny because I co-starred with Victor Mature and, and, and William Bendix, and I never met uh, William Bendix. He, we never worked in the same part of the movie. And the same thing happened with Buddy Ibsen. He co-starred with Robert Wagner, uh, Buddy Ibsen, and Robert Wagner. It was Robert Wagner, Terry Moore, and Buddy Ibsen in uh, Between Heaven and Hell. And I never met him until years later. It's often so funny you can co-star in a movie with someone and not meet them. But my first big break was a movie called Return of October. And October was a horse. And they were looking for who, uh, and I w was to try out for a role called Terry Ramsey. And Terry Ramsey lives with her Uncle Willie, uh, uh, who always said, Honey, if I ever come back, die and come back, I swear I'll come back as a horse. 
So when Terry finds a horse with all Uncle Willie's characteristics, she thinks this is Uncle Willie come back to life to win the Kentucky Derby, the thing he wanted most while living. Well, they tested everyone in Hollywood, I think including Shirley Temple, everyone, Marilyn Monroe, and they couldn't find anyone innocent enough or naive enough to believe that, uh, that her Uncle Willie could come back as a horse until they found me. Bingo, I got the role. <laughs> and when I went in to meet uh, uh, Harry Cohen, who was known as King Cohen, the terror of Columbia, head of, of uh, Columbia Studios, how I found him to be a pussycat, because he loved children and I was still such a child, even though I was 18. And I go in to meet him as Jan Ford, and I'm to star opposite Glenn Ford. And the first thing he tells my mother and me is that he can't have two Fords in one movie. Uh, that Betty Davis and uh, had just starred opposite Jim Davis and had been a failure. So they didn't want two Fords in one movie. So he said, what do you want as your first name? And he had had every department head, hairdressing, makeup, wardrobe, everyone send in their choice for uh, my name. And every, I said, I want to be called Terry. By the way, David, there were no Terrys in the business at that time. There were no girls named Terry. And it was just T-E-R-R-Y then. Now they've got every derivative. But uh, he said, well, you agree with every department head. They all think you're Terry, so that's what it is. And he said to Mother, what's your maiden name? And she said, Bickmore. He said, too long, but I've got a letter here on my desk from the silent screen star, uh, Colleen Moore, so... That's your name from now on. Goodbye, Terry Moore. And I've been Terry Moore ever since I was 18. Crowned by Harry Cohen. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. And then I stayed under contract to Columbia. I was uh, seven years... I spent my life, David, under contract. I was seven years at Eagle Lion. I was seven years at Columbia. Made a lot of movies there. Loved it. And... Uh, they lent me to Paramount to make Come Back Little Sheba, which was a huge hit and brought me an Academy Award nomination. And I refused to do uh, a movie at Columbia, so Harry Cohen dropped my contract, which was the best thing that ever happened to me because I went to 20th Century Fox then. And how that came about is I was married to Howard Hughes. It was still kept secret at the time. And... Uh, uh, I had uh, uh, I could use any of his airplanes, so I was in La Jolla doing a play. My agent called me and said, "Can you come right up here to meet with the Academy Award director, who discovered uh, Jimmy Dean and Marlon Brando and uh, so many stars?" And he directed everything that Tennessee Williams ever did on Broadway and nearly all the movies, uh, like on the waterfront and. And Streetcar Named Desire, all those wonderful movies. And I was so excited. He said, you have an interview with Elia Kazan. Uh, can you get here right away? So I got an airplane uh, and uh, I flew uh, to Culver City. And uh, my agent picked me up at the uh, airport. And that was a time in 1951 where everyone wore gloves and little hats. And, and it was very... Uh, everyone dressed very elegantly. Here I get off the plane in uh, 
tennis shoes and an old my old favorite jacket and hat that I wore. And he said, there's not time to change. You'll have to come as you are. So uh, he drove me quickly to 20th Century Fox. And Elia Kazan came out to the... Um, the waiting room, and he looked at all these pretty little girls, and then he, he looked at me, and he said, hey, you, come here. And we walked out, and he walked me up and down the lot, and he said, what can you do? Well, my agent said, you have to break horses and be real mean. I said, well, I can break horses, I'm real mean, and I can fly my own airplane. And he said, you've got the role. And I was given the role, and and I, oh, I was so thrilled. And 20th Century Fox put me under contract, and we made it in Germany. And it was so interesting going to Germany, because growing up as a child in World War II, you just never thought you would ever go to Germany. I mean, that was so off limits and bombs and everything. And when we went there, we landed in Frankfurt, and it was still all bombed out. And then we went to Munich. Munich to make the picture in our hotel. The back was all bombed out, and uh, that was the Firyara site. And, and Mrs. Goring was staying there while we were there. It was just one of the most exciting times of my life to be over there. And then when I came back, I was cast opposite Robert Wagner. Well, that was wait a minute. That was Man on a Tightrope. That was Man it? on a Tightrope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I played opposite Frederick March. He played my mother, my father, and <laughs> Gloria Graham. Excuse me, played my mother. And we had so many stars in that movie. It was exciting and wonderful. And I, I loved Kazan. I loved Frederick March. I was f- close to him to the day he died, and and to Gloria Graham till the day she died too. Okay, and you were saying about uh, with Robert Wagner. Well, then uh, I flew back, and I had to, uh, they put me in beneath the 12-mile reef opposite Robert Wagner, David, which was the first CinemaScope movie ever made. And I was also in the second CinemaScope movie ever made opposite Tyrone Power in um, King of the Kyber Rifles. And it was just such a dream because here I was a kid, and I'd grown up on Glenn... Ford and Tyrone Power movies, and uh, I never dreamed in my wildest dreams I would ever grow up and play opposite them, but I did. And I think that my favorite star I ever worked with was Tyrone. He was one of the kindest, sweetest, most wonderful men in the entire world. And he died very early at 44, and every year I speak at his memorial. Speaking of Diane Young, you, you, you also went out with James Dean, right? Did you ever work with him? Or? No, I never worked with James Dean, with Jimmy, but uh, one day I went to my a- uh, agent's office and there was a boy lying in the windowsill. And I took the Venetian blind cord and I tickled his nose. The next thing I know, I was ro- he tackled me and we were rolling over and over on the, on the agent's floor. And, and uh, Ilya Kazan... Gadge, we called him, had just made East of Eden with him, but it hadn't been released yet. So no one knew, but he told me that uh, to watch out for him. So uh, I invited him that night to dinner. And uh, he, he came in, and after he ate his dinner, he unzipped his pants and burped. And my father said, where did you get this disgusting boy? Put his plate in the corner. So I did. He said, let him, you know, he should eat like a dog. So he went over, and and Jimmy just went to the corner and licked it all up and everything. (laughs) But he, um, I was uh, uh, with Howard Hughes at the time, and uh, uh, Jimmy 
uh, and I was doing a nightclub act, and Howard had given me uh, a uh, Goldwyn Studios, a, a whole uh, set of, uh, to uh, to uh, rehearse, rehearse my nightclub act. And so Jimmy would come over with me to my lessons. Uh, he would follow me even to church, wherever I go. He was like a friend. And uh, Howard said it was okay to go to the premiere with him. So I went to the premiere, a premiere with him, and that was the one and only time that Jimmy ever wore a tuxedo. Oh, was that that was the East of Eden premiere? No, it was a premiere. Uh, East of Eden hadn't been been released yet. I forget the name of the premiere. But uh, Jimmy rented a tuxedo. It was the first and last time. He never owned his own tuxedo, uh, that he would ever wear one. And uh, all the pr- reporters kept pushing him out of the way, you know, uh, and I and I kept grabbing him and taking him up to the microphones, and I said, he has just starred in a Ibi Kazan movie, and I said, if you don't photograph him now, you're going to be sorry. And uh, I just knew he was going to be a star. He just, he did have it. He had all the qualities of star power. So where did you meet Howard, and uh, how long before this were you with Howard? Well, I met Howard in 1949, and... Um, he had seen he'd seen me in Return of October. I love that movie. Oh, I I love that movie too. And he and he he lost his mother when he was sixteen, and his father when he was nineteen, and he always thought of himself as an orphan. And I was orphaned in Return of October. And when he saw the movie in his projection room, he told Carl, his projectionist, and they both told me that later. He said, "I'm going to marry that girl." And he wanted to know how he could find me. And they said, well, she's just starred in a movie, Mighty Joe Young, at um, RKO. And he said, buy the studio. And that's why and when he bought RKO. And uh, then he did every, pulled every way he could to meet me. And he finally, um, whenever I would go to an event or any place, I would run into this agent called Johnny Mascio. And Johnny would always ask us to come and have a drink with him. Well, this particular day, I was with my boyfriend, uh, who was an actor named Jerome Cortland, who gave uh, Shirley Temple her first kiss in Kiss and Tell. And we were together. We ran into Johnny Mascio, and he asked us to go to the Beverly Wilshire and have a drink. Well, he'd asked us several times. We had said no. And he said, look, he's a friend of my mother's. We ought to go. So when we got there, we got our table. And over against the wall sat a tall, lanky stranger. And Johnny Mascio said, oh, there's Howard Hughes. He called across, Howard, are you alone? Oh, you are? Well, come join us. And this tall guy kept standing up and getting taller and taller, and he wandered over to us, and as he was coming to the table, I thought, hmm, Hughes, Houston, Hawks, Howard Hawks, Howard Hughes, John Houston. Um, I had them all mixed up. And, And so when they came over, and he sat with us, and, oh, uh, Kojo, as we called Jerome Cortland, was just overjoyed to have Howard Hughes at our table because he was a flyer also and hoped to play him on the screen, which I didn't know until he later asked us to go flying with him. And I said no, and Kojo kicked me, uh, him under the ta- me under the table and said, oh, we'd love to go, Mr. Hughes. So we started going flying with him. And uh, uh, 
I would, when I come home, uh, he would call me. What kind of planes did you go in? Did, did he fly? Oh, those were, you know, they weren't jet airplanes at that time. Prop, those were prop planes. Yes, or, prop planes. Uh, were they like six seaters uh, or larger? Or? Uh, no, they were like uh, uh, DC sixes and oh, constellations and yeah, DC threes, DC threes so and constellations. Big, big passenger planes. Big passenger planes, mm -hmm. mostly DC threes mm -hmm. at that time, which uh, were left over from. World War Two, and the airlines were just get, beginning to get into jets. Uh, we weren't into the jet age yet. Mm -hmm. So uh, I found pretty... Uh, Howard used to like to call me every night before I went to bed. And he'd even call me after I got home from my dates with Kojo. And I found out that I was rushing home from my dates to talk to Howard. He was just so fascinating and interesting. I couldn't stand him in the beginning, but I... Uh, we had so much in common because I, all my life, I loved airplanes. I used to build model airplanes, and I wanted to fly. and And I loved motion pictures. And he would invite the family over and me to watch motion pictures at Goldwyn Studios. And so I told Kojo, I said, you know, I can't wait to get home to talk to Howard. And he said, I think you're falling in love with him. Why don't you go out with him? I said, Are you crazy? Are you crazy? He said, No. And I thought, he said, why not? Why can't you go out with him? And I thought, never. He said, why not? And I thought, well, why not? And the idea sort of thrilled me and scared me. But that started my going out with Howard Hughes and my falling desperately in love with him. And as you know, David, because you know me so well, I've loved him all my life. As I say in my book, I loved him then, I love him now, and I will always love him. And so, how did your mother and father feel about him? I mean, well, he, I, there was a there was a big age difference between you, right? Oh, there was twenty three years difference. I was uh, nineteen and he was twenty three. Plus, did he I'm have forty three? Excuse me. Did he have his reputation at that time for being a womanizer? Did, I mean, the, well, my father were? knew about that, but <laughs> uh, my mother and I didn't. My father hated it. He said, "You know, he did not like it at all." And Howard even offered him all his insurance, which would have made my father a multimillionaire to represent all his companies. And he said, "You don't buy my daughter." And my mother, he charmed, as he charmed, uh, Luella Parsons said he could charm, he charmed the women out of the, uh, you know, charm anybody out of the trees. What is that saying? He could charm the birds out of the trees. Right. Well, he charmed my mother, and of course he was the perfect age for her. They were four years <laughs> difference in age. She had me when she was 19. But my dad never, uh, never did care for Howard. Mm-hmm. He felt he was going to take take the bloom off the peach. Oh, in case you hear uh, panting, that's, uh, that's boo boo. boo. <laughs> and what do you want, boo boo? Here, David, I'm going to go give her a treat, and I'll be right back. Okay. Ready, rolling. Okay. So where were we? You were saying your 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 father never never liked Howard. No, Daddy. So you're saying the insurance? I, I was my was Daddy's his... little girl. He didn't want a 43-year-old man chasing <laughs> his little girl. And you said your dad sold insurance, or what? My father worked for a retail credit company, which is an investigation. When anyone takes insurance, the insurance company hired them to investigate them, mm -hmm. be sure how healthy and everything they were. And Daddy could have done it in a moment, but uh, 
He refused, and I, I love my father so much. Uh, David, did you ever meet him? No, I never met your father. He had no. died by the time I met you, Hattie? I think so, yes. Okay. But um, I always ex uh, describe my father as the only man I ever knew who had the patience to watch a tree grow. And that was Daddy. And I get all my energy from my mother, who was a Leo, and she had much more energy than I did. And she always wanted to be an actress, and she did. She was brought up in Utah, so she did plays and things there, and a few plays in California when she moved out here. And my father uh, announced one day that he always had wanted to play Hamlet or King Lear, which I just thought was adorable. So I guess I get that acting gene from them. And you were you were born in Los Angeles, but grew up in Glendale, California. Yes, I was born in Los Angeles, grew up in Glendale. I spent uh, every summer in Downey, Idaho, which was like 350 people, and I uh, spent uh, one my third grade uh, a whole year there, and, and went to school at the third grade. So I learned how to milk cows and do all the things the girls do on The Simple Life, and I had a great time. Real country, girls. real country. They had a farm, and it was wonderful. Okay, so let's get back to Howard. You were saying he uh, you're, had a fair relationship with your parents. Uh, they they tolerated him, and and you were going flying. And now, did you know about his his reputation as a as a womanizer? And, and well, people uh, people started coming to me all the time, then telling me, and. Um, as you know, I'm a, a Mormon, and, and he had all Mormons around him because he trusted them. And uh, But uh, they would warn my mother and tell her, he's you know done such and such, and he's gone out with so-and-so when he would cheat on me. And it was horrible knowing, be, and he could never understand. He called me a Philadelphia attorney. I don't know why, but that's what he always called me. He said, what are you, a Philadelphia attorney? And... Uh, and I was so in love with him, and my father said, would would you, uh, and, and he, well, finally then, we got married, and uh, and and my father would, would hear about things, being in the business that he was in, about his cheating and everything, and, and, and I just, I still refuse to believe it, uh, I, because he always said, told me he was looking for a new Gene Harlow, right. uh, who had starred in Hell's Angels. But um, my father said to me, if, if I show you positive proof with your own eyes, will you leave him? And I said, yes. Well, one night I was staying, at my, I was staying overnight at my parents' house because uh, he was working all night on the flying boat, uh, which they call the Spruce Goose. Spruce Goose, right. Right. So he called me to say goodnight. And when I went to... Uh, hang up I missed the phone and so I put it back to my ear and he said why didn't you hang up and the same thing happened a second time when I went to hang up I missed the phone and he said he was still on the line he said why didn't you hang up now I got suspicious so I took the phone and I hung it up against the side of the phone it sounded like a click and put it back up to my ear and I heard I heard the operator say Las Vegas are you through well I started sobbing. I went to my father and I said, Daddy, he's in Las Vegas. He got a friend of his with the FBI called Leckie. And this is the only time that Howard Hughes was ever caught in his whole entire life. He got Leckie, got my mother my, and me, 
and we flew to Las Vegas. He put us at the Desert Inn. No, no, he put us in a, um, in a. Uh, we were just in a, a little over uh, a motel. We went to a motel. He said, "Stay here. I'll find out where he is." So came back and he said he's going to have lunch at the Desert Inn. He'll be down there in 15 minutes. Let's hurry. So we got a table right next to the table he was going to be at. And I had a newspaper over my uh, face and he comes down with a young girl, must have been around 18, and a whole bunch of other people and her mother. And they sit down and I just back my chair up and and and, and then go forward. So I'm right between him and the girl's, and the girl's mother. And I said, Howard, how nice to see you here. Well, he turned every color. I thought he was going to die right there. And he just sat there, and the girl's mother said, oh, those were such nice bathing suits you sent my daughter, but, you know, she's got white skin and can't get in the sun. Well, Howard liked suntans, and I said, oh, what a shame. And she said, and those roses were so beautiful you sent. And I said, roses how wonderful no one is you know and Howard is dying you know by the minute and and I'm dying I mean this is the last thing I wanted to ever happen and pretty soon I just uh it went on and on and I just I said well I've got to leave so nice to see you again and I backed my chair away and backed up to the other table and uh and I left and I guess I went down to 80 pounds. Howard went down to, uh, well, he, he went down. Greg Boutzer took me out to dinner one night, and he said, I think he's going to die. We both just lost weight, and we're wasting away. And Greg Boutzer, who was the big attorney in town, said, I want to marry you. He brought his limousine. But he said, Howard really does love you. He hasn't left his office. They've been putting food outside. He's been turning it away. He said, you've got to make up your mind. Um, uh, if you're going, he didn't know we were married. If you're going back to Howard or if you're going to marry me. And I said, I want Howard. And I went back to him for a while longer, but uh, until he broke my heart again. And then I left for a final time. Now the marriage it was a, it was a secret marriage on a on a boat. Yes, now, on a yacht. When did he propose and how did the whole marriage thing come about and and how did you guys manage to keep it secret for so long? Well, um at the time if you got were married, I had a wonderful career and I'd worked my whole life on my career, you know, starting at really 4 years old learning, you know, acting and everything and and making my first movie at 11. And it was really, I was I was one of the hot uh, new girls, and my career was just doing beautifully, and and uh, it couldn't be better. And, and, and Elizabeth Taylor and I were like neck and neck at that time. So uh, it would have ruined my career had anyone known, and Columbia would have canceled my contract so it was very necessary it was it was actually I who wanted to keep it secret Howard was really mad he wanted the world to know he said what's the matter are you ashamed of me you know and I would when we'd go to restaurants I would go inside first I'd say wait a minute you wait here and I'd go inside and 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 uh, uh, search the place to be sure there were no friends from high school or anything I was more embarrassed about my high school friends than anyone else. Now, remember, he was Tom Cruise's age and a very attractive man, you know, when you think of 43. But I thought of 43 as being very old. But, David, he was so childlike. 
You know, he was, I couldn't have gone with any other 43-year-old in the world. He was, you know, he'd take my toys apart and, and, and then he wouldn't put them back together because he had to know how everything worked. And he was uh, raised in Houston, Texas, and he really hadn't grown up or matured very much, and, and uh, nor had I, unfortunately. So we were both two very immature people. But um, where were we? We were talking about when he proposed. And... Oh, so, um, of course, I was a virgin, and uh, Howard tried every which way to... Uh, oh, one night he said um, to me, he said, don't you believe that only God can marry you? Because he knew that we married for time and eternity in our church, and I said, oh, yes. So I do believe that. So... He said, well, then let's let God marry us. So he drove me up to Mulholland Canyon, and which were, was uh, where everyone liked to go up there and, and park and, and kiss and everything. And we were the only, it's beautiful overlooking the whole city. And uh, we went up there and uh, he, he, we got out of the car and he put his coat on the ground. It was beautiful. You could see the stars everywhere. And we held hands and we prayed before God we would be married. And then he started back to the Beverly Hills Hotel where he was living. And I lived in Glendale. And I said, where are you going? And he said, oh, I'm taking you home. We're married now. And I said, not in the eyes, of, we may be in the eyes of God, but not to, in the eyes of the state. No, 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 you take me home. Well, very shortly after that, he arranged this secret marriage on the boat with uh, Noah Dietrich, with his lawyer, um, uh, Frank, I can't remember his last name now, and uh, with my school teacher and my mother, my father refused to come, and it was a lovely wedding, and it was in, we went out in Mexican waters, and his captain married us. So it was on his, his yacht, or his... Yes, it, it, it was a yacht that he leased. Mm. He had had a yacht previously, but it was a yacht that he leased down there, and his sea captain was, uh, he could uh, sail any ship in the world. And was uh, it was a, a legal marriage, and he could marry you at sea, which he did, and it was lovely. So where did you honeymoon, and what was? Well, no, we 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 were always constantly it was a secret. I yeah, guess. Yeah, it was. We were always kind of on a honeymoon with Howard, but uh, no, we went back to the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel, and he had leased a beautiful home at. at uh, uh, 10,000 Sunset Boulevard. It's the one with all the statues out there. It's just gorgeous. And we were there between Bungalows uh, 19 and the Beverly Hills Hotel. I mean, yes. I mean, Bungalow 19 at the Beverly Hills Hotel and, and on Sunset Boulevard. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what, you just, since it was a secret, you just went back to work and uh, I went back to work and, and I, I'd, I'd stay at home part of the time I'd stay with him part of the time we lived separately we lived together when we could but uh, it was very hard to at that day because people in those days because people didn't live together mm -hmm. so it was it was really more on a on a uh, dating basis but but I found a lot of time to be with him and then our my stand-in came to live with us too and uh, she would travel with us, like, you know, as a beard. Mm -hmm. And we would fly to Vegas and all over. And and it was so exciting. Uh, I'll never forget the time we flew to the Grand Canyon. And he blindfolded me. 
And so, when, and he never carried money and I didn't. And so when we landed, uh, we had, I think, 19 cents between us. And we were able to get a sandwich with that and divide it. And when we were leaving to go home, uh, he, we had to go to the men's room. And he came out back and he said, do you have a dime? There were paid toilets at that time. And I said, you know, I don't. I gave you my last penny. And so he was gone the longest time. And when he came back, he was filthy from head to toe. He had had to climb under. And he was nearly 6'4", just under 6'4". And the next day, he had all the paid toilets taken out of all the airports. <laughs> it was so funny. Funny. Okay, now you worked uh, as, uh, I guess, a consultant on, on The Aviator, which was uh, uh, Scorsese's film with Leonardo DiCaprio. And you were a, a consultant to Leonardo DiCaprio. What was your exact role in, well, the, in that movie? I, I wasn't and actually a consultant at all. What happened was, is Leonardo went to Jane Russell to find out about Howard, uh, so to get some his characterization, some mm-hmm. research. And she said, you've got to go to Terry Moore. She knows more about him than his mother. So he called me, and he came over, and uh, I gave him taped conversations of Howard and me. Immediately he got the voice down. Uh, we talked a lot on the phone. We emailed each other every day when he was in Canada shooting. We would talk all the time. And uh, he, I would tell him expressions Howard would use, and he would use them in the movie. I felt it was so interesting. For instance, he would always say, I've got a tiger by the tail and I can't let it go, and he had that. And Howard told me that I had a short upper lip, and that's why I had a pretty smile. You had a prettier smile if you had a short upper lip. I got such a big kick out of that because Leo put him in uh, all Howard's expressions in the movie. And... Uh, I, I just fell in love with him. It, uh, both Jane and I did. We're Annie Jane and Aunt Terry. I just we both wanted to adopt him. He was so adorable and sweet. And we just had a wonderful time. And and then he surprised me and came to my Christmas party and brought Scorsese with him, Martin, who I'd always wanted to meet. And he thanked me so much. And he had us on the set. And I said, "May I bring Jane?" And they said, "Of course." And then he put my son Grant in his chair and sort of mentored him. And Leo came out and he said, oh, you can't sit in Marty's chair. And I said, he put him there. And he said, well, he never does that. Of course, Grant would love to follow in his footsteps. I know he will because he's such a great writer. He's just written a uh, four-hour miniseries, which we're doing. And the producer uh, who won the Academy Award for Schindler's List is producing it. And and, uh, Brian Singer was going to direct it, but... uh, our movie was canceled because of Leonardo, so it was very funny, kind of sad when he asked me. But, you know, all things turn out for the best because they beat us with their movie by 10 days. Otherwise, uh, the director of Superman and X-Men was going to direct our picture. Now we have uh, uh, another great director who's going to do our miniseries, uh, who um, I think was not, he was nominated for the Academy Award for... Uh, on Golden Pond, Mark Rydell. So we're all ready to go. We have uh, uh, the Wolpers producing it, who's produced most of the big miniseries and Warner Brothers Money. We're just looking for the right Howard. And what's the name of the... It's going to be called Hughes. 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 That sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, of course, it may be changed ten times before it comes out. Mm-hmm. But... 
what I think then, you know, was very exciting. I went on with my late husband. Uh, we wrote two books together. Well, I wrote uh, uh, The Beauty and the Billionaire Alone, but he helped edit and everything. And, and then he wrote Alone, but I did all the research and gave him the background. He writes much differently from me, actually much more like Harold Robbins. I write, uh, he writes very sensual. I write very m much more from the soul, I think. And uh, we had a second book together called The Passions of Howard Hughes. And then we started a book together, which I've uh, finished, called How Do You Stay So Young? Because, David, the first two questions, when anyone meets me, they ask me, first, is what was Howard Hughes really like? Which I told him it took two books to explain him. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and the other question is, how do you stay so young? So this book is what I learned from everyone I ever worked with, back to Mary Pickford. I did. I was too young to work with her in movies, but we did. Uh, when she was in her fifties, she did a radio show called "Nobody's Children" to get children adopted, and I played all the children. And I have John Wayne, uh, who said I was his best friend, uh, and uh, Cary Grant, and Tyrone. Power and all the great stars I worked with right up to the present with uh, Leonardo and John Travolta, two, two actors I just love and adore. So, uh, and, and it's all the things I learned from them about staying young. For instance, John Wayne taught me anticipation. I mean, sometimes people get depressed, they don't even want to get up the next morning. But if you always have something in your life to anticipate, it keeps you young. So um, I have, um, I, I'm very proud of the book, and we're wait, waiting to have it uh, uh, published after our uh, reality show comes on. Right. So anyway, going back to my late husband, we, we produced two books. We produced a, um, a, a uh, talk show called Terry's World, which had every major star on. And then we made two movies, the first one being Beverly Hills Bratz, which we wrote the original story for. And we had starred Martin Sheen and myself and, uh, oh, an all-star cast. Bert, uh, oh, it was just wonderful. And uh, uh, that, let's see, and then, then we made, and we, uh, Whoopi Goldberg uh, was in it. Uh, she did a cameo. And Peter Billingsley. And, uh, oh, it was just, it was a wonderful movie. And then um, we made a movie called uh, Second Chances. And it was like National Velvet with a double twist at the ending. It was a lovely picture. So they were both G-rated movies. And then my husband, he died suddenly at the age of 57. So now I'm partners with my son, younger was, son, that Grant. That was Jerry Rivers. That yeah. was Jerry Rivers, yes. And now I'm partners, it's called Moore Kramer, with my, my younger son, Grant Kramer. And he uh, created and is producing a reality show for me, along with the producer, uh, Jeff Jenkins of uh, Simple Life. And we're doing it for VH1 and uh, Bunham and Murray are a production company who do Simple Life and Real World. I mean, they're the, probably the best of, and the oldest of all the uh, uh, production companies. And we've just finished our pilot, and they're all so excited about it. They all, they, 
Oh, I'm, I was just thrilled. But, David, I have worked when we used to have to work seven days a week. Uh, they could work as, as long as they wanted to. But we worked 16 hours a day. And, I mean, that was before the camera. We That wasn't the time that it took for us to get ready in the morning or to get unready at night. But I'm still on a, a, a natural high from it. It's called, well, for the moment, uh, Mogul Mamas or Hip Hop Mogul Hip-hop Mamas. Mogul Mamas. Yes. Right. And I'm so excited about it. And it's so different because you remember when we were all together, my girlfriend Gita, uh, she... Uh, uh, we were friends back when she was the one of the biggest models in New York and when I was a movie star in Hollywood. Well, both our husbands died at the same time. She moved to, back here to California, and we just decided that we didn't want to be uh, uh, put out to pasture and or just play bridge with the girls, that we wanted uh, to... Uh, go into the youth culture and where better but to go into rap and hip-hop so that's what we've done and we're sort of uh, an American um, what do you call it American Idol uh, for hip-hop and rap but it's not like that because but because we discover and manage stars uh, we're going to make stars of them just like they do but w- you see us going around and finding them uh, 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 turning us into hip-hop artists we went first to Quincy Jones who's on the show and Quincy got us a he couldn't be with us all the time because he was going to be our our advisor but he got us the realist who is a a big up-and-coming rock star so if we don't know what we're going to do from one minute to the other Uh, one day he has his going uh, to hip-hop buying clothing, another place, uh, bling, bling, buying bling, 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 meeting up with former gang members of the Bloods and the Crips. I mean, you have no idea all the things that we've been doing, uh, getting a theater and auditioning 250 people, taking us out to get tattoos at 12 midnight after we're finishing interviewing everyone. But that's where I put my foot down. Gita was born in Sweden. She got the Swedish flag tattooed on her. But one night I stayed up till four in the morning and found out that every mass murderer had a tattoo. And I decided, no way, no tattoos for this one. Mm-hmm. So I went along with everything but that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think the, that brings you up to the present. Yeah, pretty much. Well, I just want to ask you about the aviator. How accurate do you feel that was as, as far as representing... Howard as as a person, and I think you had mentioned to me that that there were some kind of things that were took a little creative license that you didn't feel were well, entirely accurate. Martin had to, and he knew he did because they had no ending. Um, he, he they did I think the glamour years and, and the youth of uh, of Howard Hughes well the glamour years of Howard Hughes beautifully, and the, and it was so well directed and and the special effects everything was fant- was you know monumental, it was wonderful. I didn't like the childhood because it it gave the inference that his mother might have been a molester, and. Uh, uh, we could do two hours on just Howard's. Uh, on television, on his childhood. It was so fascinating. They didn't really get into it, but it has so much, uh, it, it bears so much on the man he became. And then the ending wasn't the right reason why he died, and and uh, they had him go crazy, but he went crazy 30 years too soon. 
and for the wrong reasons. But uh, I think they did a great job, and, and it was you know, what we call poetic license. Mm -hmm. The other thing which we kind of skipped over was uh, during the, the Korean War, when you went and entertained the troops, the whole ermine bathing suit uh, part of your life and the effect on your career? Oh, that was... Well, I went to Korea to entertain the troops, uh, David, and that was probably one of the most exciting times of my life. Never have I ever known such audiences, and I've been entertaining troops ever since, and I'm going to this year uh, again, on October 15th at uh, Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, the, the, that comes first in my life, our troops. Uh, I think anyone who lived through World War II is probably the most patriotic Americans you'll ever find on the face of this earth. We're dying out quickly, but we're a different breed of cat. We love our country, our flag, uh, in God do we trust, and the Pledge of Allegiance, we, you know, we, we love all that. And, and I, I was the number one pinup of the Korean War, and, uh, when they had their 50th anniversary, uh, the Air Force took me back there again with all the generals and everything. And uh, and Penny Singleton, who was in her 90s, who played Blondie on the Blondie series, and uh, uh, it was it was fantastic going back there again with Johnny Grant 50 years later. And now I'm still entertaining trip. Well, groups. tell me about the actual though the the event with the ermine bathing suit. That's oh, well. I was under contract to 20th Century Fox, and that was like today uh, being Aaron, Tori Spelling, Erin Spelling's daughter, because Susan Zanuck, the daughter, had all these marvelous clothes and everything. She was, we were going to Korea to entertain, and I thought, what could I wear that was different and glamorous? Because all the girls, like Debbie Reynolds and Marilyn Monroe and all of them, when they'd go over there, they would issue you GI clothing. Well, everyone was so used to always being dressed up that they loved wearing the GI clothing, so they'd wear it on the stage. And the guy said, well, we hope when Terry Moore comes over, she's not going to wear the GI clothing, the <laughs> GI issue. So I laid in bed one night, and I thought, what could I wear that's glamorous but warm? And I thought of a bathing suit, but that wasn't warm, so I thought, oh, an ermine bathing suit, because that won't make you too fat. Santa Claus wears ermine. And I'll go to Edith Head, who had... I think 15 Academy Awards uh, that's Boo Boo Panning and 15 Academy Awards and I'll get her to design me an ermine bathing suit well it was so darling I still have the sketch and it had little majorette boots with little ermine tails hanging on and, and a little Sonia Heine, um, Henny hat that she would wear when she'd ice skate that ties under your chin and little mittens trimmed in ermine and it was just adorable. And then I went to a furrier and I said, if you'll make this for me, I promise you I'll get a picture made in it. Well, I didn't know that I would become, uh, my, I would have more publicity than any human being on the face of the earth with one exception in 1953, and that was Nikita Khrushchev. I was on 40 magazine covers, including Life, uh, uh, Look, uh, Red Book, Cosmopolitan, every book you could possibly imagine uh, because I wore the ermine bathing suit in Korea. And I had had an interview with a Times um, reporter, and she said, what are you going to wear in Korea? And I said, well, I'm going to wear this ermine bathing suit, but I'm going to put a GI issue overcoat over it. So when I go on stage, all the guys are going to go, oh, and I'm going to say, open it up and say, this is the new GI issue underwear. 
Well, she didn't tell him I was wearing an ermine bathing suit under <laughs> under the overcoat, and everyone thought I was doing a strip act, and uh, the American mothers demanded that I come home. The army put me on their shoulders, and they marched with me in Korea, and I had a chaplain from every religion uh, standing up for me, and, and the boys saying, if we're old enough to fight a war, we're old enough to see a girl in an ermine bathing suit. So their decision was reversed. The army didn't send me home, but uh, it, it took all the war news off the front pages. Every headline in the world was about my ermine bathing suit. It was like a little bunny. <laughs> it was so cute. I mean, I could wear it uh, into any restaurant today. That's how modest it was. And they always called it, not my ermine one-piece bathing suit. Uh, for some reason, the first uh, columnist who ever wrote about it called it a, a mink bikini. So, and there were very few bikinis were just coming out at that time. So, uh, it's still called my mink bikini rather than my one-piece ermine. Even though it was suit. a one-piece, right? Uh, right. Okay, well, Terry, thank you very much. And I hope uh, we'll talk again about, uh, obviously, you have thousands and thousands of stories and I love to hear all of them and well the I'm next sure time you come out here we'll do some more I hope mm -hmm. there'll be a lot more stories to tell okay well thank you very much again thank you sweetheart say bye to everybody bye <laughs> thank you for listening <laughs>